Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this program. Will you bow your heads with me for prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you have given us this weekend. Thank you for the opportunity that we have had to be here. And this afternoon, I pray that you will um, bestow so much knowledge on us that we are ready to take you forth and share the joy of the second coming. Thank you for the thirst for knowledge that you give each of us. And I pray that as um, we come in contact with others, that they will see your love through us. We thank you for the love that you give each and every one of us every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon, ASI. If there's one thing that Seventh-day Adventists believe, if there's one thing that is even encapsulated in their name, it is concerning the advent, the appearing, the second coming of Jesus. And today we're going to be discussing that topic, which I think is near and dear to each of our hearts. And years ago, numerous times from the prophetic pen and voice of Ellen White, the church was told that Christ could come, and Christ could come, and Christ could come. So today, what we want to do is talk about that second coming, and we're going to really look at three basic categories. And we're going to look at this in three basic sections. Um, and in between, we're going to have some lovely music that focuses on the second coming. Um, the first section, we're going to be talking about why are we still talking about the second coming? Um, why has Jesus not yet come? That's section number one. Then we're going to look um, at another section. What in the world indicates that God is on the move, that Jesus is about to return? We'll look at some signs in the world, some signs in the church. And then in our final section, we'll be looking at what can Seventh-day Adventist church members, ASI members, do to hasten Christ's coming? What kind of things can we do? Now, in facilitating this, I want to thank all of you for, or many of you, it almost seems like all of you, the number of questions that came in, for uh, sending in your questions. There are more questions than we'll be able to answer, but what I did as the moderator was try and collate those and then got together with our seven-day Adventists up here. There's seven of us. And we discussed the questions, and then we... Uh, we kind of group them in categories. So you might have like an amalgamation of your question. It might be, that's my question, but it's maybe smashed together with three others that were similar. So if it sounds like your question, don't get up and start screaming, but it probably is uh, a similar type of question to the others. Well, let's just bow our heads before we begin this discussion and, and meet our guests and then begin to talk. Father in heaven, Lord, the very fact that we are here discussing this as has been mentioned already today in the divine service and, and even before, is somewhat of a rebuke to us. And uh, we do long to see you come. And we, while we enjoy ASI as it is a piece of heaven, we would rather be having ASI in heaven. Amen. So bless us today as we talk and as we discuss, and may May your Holy Spirit do something for us individually. May this be something very personal for each of us that, that we could even have a recommitment, renewal, and revival during this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
Our panelists are uh, Elder Finley, assistant to the president of the General Conference and for many years a, an evangelist. Um, I first met him when I was nine years old, but he doesn't probably remember that. And then Andy Hunziker, she is a physician at Harvard um, in the women's uh, hospital where she is in charge of the neuroimaging department. And so she's going to take an inside look at things with us today. And then we have our general conference president, um, Elder Ted Wilson, who has served the church for years. I still remember his father coming to my home as a little boy, and he always remembered my name, no matter what I looked like or what I had been into. And then Elder, Elder C.D. Brooks, wasn't it a blessing to have him with us today for the divine service? And uh, former field secretary of the general conference still has an office there. If you want to get mail to him, just send it to the general conference, C.D. Brooks. And we're glad he's with us. Then Elder Reed, who is now serving with WAR uh, World Radio, Adventist World Radio in, uh, in development for many years, was dealing with financial issues, has written a number of books on the end time as well. We're glad that he's with us. And then Attorney Lewis Walton, a tax attorney um, in L.A., I believe, and uh, for many years has also served the church in, on the camp meeting circuit and through writing books that have provoked a lot of thought on this subject. Well, let's get started. I want to lay some ground rules for, ground rules for my panelists, and that is we want uh, short questions that are also complete. I mean, short answers <laughs> that are also complete. I know that's kind of almost impossible, but as succinct as you can because we want to cover uh, more material. And then also the, the second thing is I'm going to be trying to give each one of you a time to respond to questions. So I may call out uh, one of you individually to answer a question, and then if you don't really feel like answering that question, you can always pass that off to the others, okay? All right, so let's begin. Um, why are we still talking about the second coming? Um, why have we not yet seen Jesus come? Um, that's our first section. And uh, there was a question that came in under that section that I kind of put there, and I want to address this to the doctor from, from, from Harvard. We're told in the Bible in the spirit of prophecy, this is a question that came in, that the gospel was given to the whole world by the early church in the first generation after Christ. It says that in Colossians, a number of verses. And then Ellen White agrees, the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it is also in all the world and was preached to every creature. Typically we are told that finishing the work is to make sure that everyone hears the gospel message and then Jesus will come. But if that already happened, if every creature already heard it 2,000 years ago, what was lacking? Must there be more finishing the work? Is there something more than just message propagation and distribution? I think I know why um, Don has asked me that question, because I know exactly where that question came from. I want to thank my great husband for that question. <laughs> <laughs> But there's a really nice quote that I like. Um, certainly, the gospel, the Bible does say that in several passages, and Ellen White agrees. But I think that there are certain things that the Lord is waiting for. And I just want to read a quote um, from Ellen White that says um, that Christ is waiting for his portrait to be painted in each of his disciples. And I think that to the extent that that portrait is not painted, he's waiting. And so I think that message propagation is one thing, but he wants to actually see 
himself represented in us. We're told in Revelation 18.1 that the earth will be lightened with his glory. And I don't think that he wants to come back to a dimly lit world. Anyone else want to add to that following up? Okay, Elder Reed. Uh, it's interesting that uh, we all talk about Matthew 24, 14, when the gospel was preached in all the world. Well, as you mentioned, it had, was preached in the, all the world in the first century. But Jesus told us two things to look for. One is conditions, and the other one is the great prophetic timeline. And when commenting on 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Ellen White said, you know, the, the, the coming will not take place till the falling away and the men of sin revealed and so on. She says that that's the 1260-year uh, period ended in 1798, and she said the second coming of Christ could not take place before that time. That's Great Controversy 356, and it's interesting that from that time on, we've had the Great Awakening and the Advent Movement and so on, which makes it very, very relevant and prophetic in fulfillment. The unique contribution that Seventh-day Adventists have to make to Christendom is an understanding of the Bible through the Great Controversy theme. And as I look at the context of the great controversy, Satan challenged the government of God. Satan said that God was a vindictive judge, he was a wrathful tyrant, that he was self-centered. In the entire panorama of the plan of salvation in the coming of Christ to the earth the first time was to reveal the love and grace of God. And we know what God is like by seeing what Jesus was like. In the context of that great controversy, although Jesus demonstrated clearly what the Father was like, the Bible says in Mark chapter 4 that the harvest will be fully ripe. So God will reveal through his people to a waiting world and a watching universe God's marvelous love. And why hasn't Jesus come? It is not simply that the gospel has not been preached to the world. It is that all of heaven and the entire universe are waiting in a sin-filled world for God to re God's love to be revealed through his people as a contrast to selfishness. So in the context of the great controversy, God has this longing desire to reveal himself through his people. Let's move on to the next question. Um, and I want to direct this to Attorney Walton, um, because you and I were talking about this as well. And um, there were a number of questions that came in that were giving various uh, statements from the pen of inspiration concerning various times where Ellen White said he's coming. In fact, some of the statements said some of the people even standing here will be food for worms. And I always noticed that when I was a young man. I said, man, that's intense. Um, and so all of these different statements, can you set any light uh, on those statements for us? Let me quickly speak to the issue of food for worms. If my mic is on. And that is, that was in the context of a great revival that took place in the church in the 1850s when everybody, nearly everybody expected the Lord would come as a result of that. It was a conditional prophecy. Ellen White said her angel said that. She didn't say she got that from the Lord. There was a period of time of about 34 months in which after that period was over, Ellen White said the Lord has given the Laodicean message time to do its work, revive and reform Adventism, and bring on the second coming. The second coming could have happened before the Civil War, <clears throat> according to her. Now the question here, first of all, let me, let me give the, paint the silver side of the cloud first. I am convinced that if the spirit of ASI were shared by every member of this church, we would not be here this morning. We would be now looking back on the sea of glass, the welcome home supper. We would be hard at work in the cosmos. The spirit in this group, if it, 
infected the entire church with this delightful excitement and, and commitment could finish the work of God. There's enough horsepower in this room to get it done, and one of our mission fields is inside the church as well as outside the church. To the issue, though, of why are we still here, Ellen White in 1883 said, Christ could have come ere this. 1890, she said it all again. Had the purpose of God been carried out by his people, Christ would ere this have come. Eight more years went by. Now she's in Australia. She says, if God's people had the love of Christ in the heart, a thousand doors of usefulness would be open. Christ would have come to the earth ere this. Now where am I going with this? Three years later, in 1901, she repeats that same statement, but now something ominous is creeping into her language when she also adds, we may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, then goes on to say, but for Christ's sake, don't blame heaven for that. It's not heaven's plan. And the question that I want to pose to us in answer to that issue is how could we be insubordinate? And might I suggest a good way to do it would be to lose sight of our mission. What are our operational orders in this world? Why are we here? Volume 9 says the most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given to us to proclaim to the world. That's why we're here. How could we be insubordinate? We could preach that message without acting as if we really believe it. How could we do that? One way would be to let Hollywood into the heart of our homes through the kind of entertainment that drifts us away from the commitment we still say we believe. May I respectfully suggest that is the single best method we could use to lose our youth, which would then lead us to a second level of insubordination, and that would be to disrespect our youth and treat them as if they are an inconvenient age group whose only real function is to be entertained. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have seen Exhibit A here at ASI that our young people can do more than that. May I also suggest that that means we should have a very acute interest in the quality of our educational institutions. Do our kids come back from their schooling solid in the Word of God, convinced and more able than ever to explain and believe our doctrines, including even stuff like how we got to be on this earth? So number two, we could be insubordinate by drifting away, allowing a world uh, that is not centered on the second coming to influences. Finally, number three, we could be insubordinate by forgetting the vital fact that this church is a world church and we need to act like a world church. And this church, every division of it, every conference, every union should speak with one voice and follow a common plan toward home. Thank you for that short succinct and definitely complete answer. Um, yeah, well, he said attorney when he asked the question. You asked for it. <laughs> I didn't want you to sue me for my taxes. Um, okay, I have, a, I, have a, I have a question for Elder Brooks. Okay, I know you all want to add on to that, and maybe I should defer to, to the wisdom, but let me see if you can work with this question directed to Elder Brooks. The disciples were of one accord in the upper room before the Holy Spirit was poured out. The General Conference is currently calling for prayer, for revival, for reformation, but there are many factions within Adventism. What efforts have been made in reaching out to re reconcile with them? 
is there a way we can have the Lord come when we are so disunified? Elder Brooks. I have a perspective that's probably unique with me. A question came in about 1844, and the great disappointment, I can understand it, because in 1844, my people were slaves under the most inhumane system ever recorded about in history. I had no idea when I learned these things that people thought Christ should have come. He wasn't coming and take anybody anywhere without us. That's right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that, that's one perspective. Ellen White says, there never was a time, there never was a time when the truth should not have been presented with a sense of urgency. I almost got it right. Paul and the apostles wrote about time. They said it's high time in their day. And the Lord had to clear Paul's mind by giving him visions of the eight, uh, uh, what he just mentioned, 1260-year period. All of these things had to transpire. So he had to project beyond that. And uh, I really think it's best that we don't know the day or the hour. God determined it. Of course, that's enough to make it best. We don't know the day or the hour, but I know that Jesus is coming soon. The signs that are fulfilled all around us speak to us in a way as never before. I saw a meteorologist on television following one of these capricious acts of nature, and he was called in right on camera. That's a man who studied the science of meteorology. That's a man who got his degree in it. That's a man who does it professionally. And they asked him, what's going on? These unusual things. And he looked blankly into the camera and said, I don't know. And the truth is, he doesn't know. But we're seeing things now, and we're not supposed to grab an idea and run with it as though we have the last word. I believe in the organization of the church. I believe in leadership. I believe that when men study something in these councils and come out with recommendations, they are the best that these men can produce. And I support them, and I'm willing to go along with that. You're not going to find our leaders willfully giving wrong advice. The Lord should have come ere this, but aren't you glad he didn't? We have an opportunity of being with Christ in the kingdom. We couldn't have had that if he had come in 1888 and other uh, suggested times. Thank you, Elder. You, you answered a lot of my other questions too here, so now I don't know what to do. But let me come back to the one that I think that you still, we still could uh, deal with, and I'm going to open up to the rest of the panel, and that is, if, uh, you know, we saw unity in the upper room and that brought the Holy Spirit and we don't see unity now, can Jesus come without unity is, is the question. And I think uh, the doctor is going to help uh, look <laughs> on the inside of that. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, I think, is John 17. I always ask myself, if I were going to be executed, facing immediate execution, what would I pray for? And Jesus Christ prayed for unity. But there's a text in John 17 that I want to look at. Um, John 17, verse uh, 24, and then verse 26. He continues, he, first of all, he prays for himself, then he prays for these disciples, then he prays for all believers, and he says, Father, this verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, that's my character, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oftentimes, I think we look at that with me where I am as being in heaven. But I think with him means I'm with you. I'm on the same page. 
So I think if Jesus Christ praying for unity among us, and not only that, that we're on the same page with his heart, then I think unity is, is huge. Amen. Okay, uh, El Elder Finley, one, one uh, lifeline for you here. Recently in my study of the Sabbath school, for the Sabbath school lessons and the research that I did in preparing for this series on revival and reformation, I reread the book of Acts numerous times, asking myself the very question that was raised, what are the elements of unity in the book of Acts? Mm. Obviously, Peter's dispositional traits were different than Thomas's dispositional traits, and they were different than John's dispositional traits. So unity is not everybody having the same personality or the same dispositional traits. Neither is it everybody eating the same or dressing the same or liking the same foods. Unity and uniformity are two very different things. Uniformity has to do with an external um, something external. Unity has to do with something internal. If you look at the book of Acts, there are four basic um, elements of unity. Commitment to a common Christ. In the book of Acts, the disciples were sold out for Jesus Christ. They were totally committed to Jesus. They were passionate about Jesus. Second, they were, commit they were committed to a common prophetic message. Jesus was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Doctrine played a major role in unifying them. Thirdly, they were committed to a common mission. They were passionate about reaching the world. And fourthly, they were committed to a structure of church governance. You had the Jerusalem Council. You had a system of leadership. Those elements bring unity, commitment to a common Christ, commitment to a prophetic Adventist message, commitment to a mission, and commitment to a church that God has divinely raised up at end time to proclaim a message to reach the world. Amen. Amen. I want to get to a couple other questions here, and thank you for that, uh, panelists. Um, I want to direct this one to Elder Wilson. What, if anything, Elder Wilson, does Isaiah 58 have to do with the second coming? Uh, I have a, a lot of other comments. I'm going to try and squeeze them in at other times. But uh, 58, Isaiah, absolutely critical to the way in which people are supposed to relate to others showing Christ's character and his ministry. Uh, you know, when Christ went to the temple, he read from Isaiah, he read from, uh, from Scripture, and it's recorded for us in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It is the way in which we relate, and this is one of the very major ways in which we are hoping mission to the cities is going to work, that people are going to, church members, be able to show the character of Jesus in a very powerful way as they reflect the fruit of the Spirit and Christ's character. So Isaiah 58 and an understanding of how we relate to people and that in reality our ministry is to affect others is going to play an incredible part. We use the term medical missionary work, which is uh, comprehensive health ministry, whatever term we would like to use. And we're told that it will be the last work that we will be able to do. When we will not be able to hold public evangelistic meetings, beautiful convocations like this, we will be able to do medical ministry medical missionary work, and it is the work of every member, not just health professionals. So I think the Lord is preparing His people now for us to understand how that can fit into uh, mission to the cities and many ways in which truly the second coming can be preceded by a reflection of Christ's character. Amen. Okay, another question, and uh, let's see. I have not directed one specifically to Elder Reed yet, so let me direct this to him. Could the reason be, this is a question that came in, could the, be, the reason be that for Christ not coming, 
Could it be the same as why he did not return in 1844 and then again after 1888? Is the reason that we have not seen him come is because he, we have not responded to his third angel's message in verity? Well, that's a good question. She says the third angel's message in verity is justification by faith. And I'm glad to say and to observe that we're seeing more about that in our church every day. More of our preachers are preaching about it, more of our people are experiencing it. And a, another interesting factor about this, and this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, of course, and the amazing thing about it, we accept God's justification for us. But I found this interesting statement when I was teaching stewardship, and that is one of the reasons there's such a great dearth of the Spirit of God, which is the transforming agent when Ellen White talks about what happened to Nicodemus, no one sees the hand that lifts the burden and so on when the Spirit of God comes. One of the reasons is that we, she says, there's such a great dearth of the Spirit of God is that so many are robbing God. And I don't really expect that we could receive the Spirit of God while we're robbing Him. That's what I think about that particular topic. And of course, the Holy Spirit's role is to transform us, to do the finishing touches on our character, and give us the power to finish the work. And we all want that. So I'm encouraging faithfulness. Amen. Another question that I want to just throw out to each of you, you know, we hear a lot about, uh, and we even heard it in, in answers from the panel today, that what needs to happen is that we need to perfectly reflect the character of Christ. And of course, that's a statement. It's not just something we're hearing from the panel. Uh, then, um, but then some will say, well, if you uh, preach that too much, people will talk about being perfect and they will get into perfectionism and there'll be a problem with that. Then others talk about what we need to do is point out the problems in the church and show the sin and whatnot, and, uh, and, uh, and then if we sin enough, then he'll have to come and step in with wrath. And then others say, you know, uh, what we really need to do is, is create um, as many devices as possible to get the message out as quickly as possible, and we need to work on the mission of the church. And there's always this tension between these three. Uh, which one of them is right? How should we relate to, to these seemingly conflicting uh, views concerning the second coming? Uh, the second coming has to be rooted in your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ has to be central in everything that you do and think about. Uh, I, don't, I find it difficult for, in my own understanding, how people cope without the hope of the second coming. It, it's absolutely something that just animates me, and I'm just so excited about it. But I think the sense of urgency in understanding what time in which we're living is something which has to be paramount as we try to recapture uh, an understanding of the great controversy theme and how God is intending to use his people at the very end of time. And as I travel extensively all around the world, I try to emphasize strongly the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, every sermon that we preach somehow, some way, ought to have in it that element of a sense of urgency of Jesus' second coming. Amen. And uh, I'm hoping that more and more people will gain that, that understanding. But you know, this whole sense of urgency aspect and how you fit that in with the mission and how you live your life and all of that, it's an age-old problem. I mean, Second Peter chapter 3 tells us exactly that people are going to be scoffing, pointing questions, where is his coming? And then the Lord says he's not slack concerning his promise. And then he says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Mm -hmm. So I think somehow we have to recapture that we are Seventh-day Adventists.
you just joined us, we're talking about the second coming. Why are we still talking about it as the Adventist church? And uh, why is there a delay? In our last exchange, we, we heard a lot of, of uh, fascinating and very helpful things. And uh, the last question that I had asked and uh, our general conference president had responded was to this tension between, um, you know, character and, and being like Jesus. And some people would say if we focus on that, it can lead to self-doubt and perfectionism. And then also this idea of, 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 of the sin, pointing out the sin, the idea that the wrath of God would be poured out and he would step in as he did in the flood or when the Amorites, their, their sin reached a certain level. And then also missionary work, maybe focusing on missionary work. And uh, just before we came back, Mark Finley nudged me and said, I, I really want to say something about that, so go ahead. Thank you for letting the elderly spokesman with Brother Brooks, the two of us, you know, we've been around for a few years. Um, the promises of the Bible focus on who God is, not on who we are. So when you look at three promises, simple promises, Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus began a good work in us, and he'll finish it. Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, he, Jesus, that begun a good work in you will finish it. So righteousness by faith is not sinning by presumption. Righteousness by faith grasps everything that Christ has done for me on the cross, everything that Jesus is doing for me in heaven and sanctuary, and everything that he will do for me in the future. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God. When you and I come to Christ, when we understand His grace, when we're justified through that redemption on the cross, we now are the children of God. But look at the rest of the text. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The child who is in first grade of elementary school is just as much in school as the child who's getting ready to graduate in the eighth grade. When we come to Jesus, we are children of God, and if we are committed to him and stay with him, he will finish the job in our lives. I thank God that I can trust him, that he will finish in my life what he has started and through me reveal his loving character to the world as I focus on what he can do, not on what I can do. Thank you for that. Uh, I know I want to get into my next section, so I'm going to allow you, Attorney Walton, 15 seconds. <laughs> Five of which you already used up. <laughs> I think Elder Finley put that so well. You know, the term is righteousness by faith, not excuses by faith. Why is it important at the end of time? Because you've got a whole seven billion people in this world about to face an issue where it's life or death decisions. And the only example they may see that the gospel really works is in your life. It's an issue of due process. They deserve that from you. Thank you, Your Honor. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. You know, I, I actually got absolution from Mark to be able to speak. so. 
You know, and I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that, that Mark uncovered the elephant in the living room. Someone mentioned 1888, um, Pastor Brooks, you did. You mentioned 1888. You know, that's something in our history that's a stain on the church's history. And, you know, there was not a come to Jesus moment after that time. And Elder Wilson read a text in 2 Peter 3, but only quoted part of the text. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Typically, we use that as people that have not heard. I think that text is for all of us. You know, when, when Moses was recounting for the people in Deuteronomy 8, how they failed to cross over all the bad things they did that prevented the Lord from letting them go through, those were not the people that were present at that time. And so this talks about repentance, and I believe that we as a church, we as leadership, anybody's leadership, we as members, really have to grapple with that stain on our denominational history and repent of rejecting what the Lord sent as a most precious message to our church. And I think once we do that, there will be showers of blessing. Amen. Okay, let's move to our second section now, which is uh, that question, what in the world and in the church indicate that God is on the move? What are some signs um, of his second coming? One of the questions that came in to kind of set this up, uh, someone wrote in, we are told in the Great Controversy that, quote, a backsliding church closed their eyes to the signs of the times, unquote. So we don't want to, how many of you would agree we don't want to be a backsliding church? We want to know what some of the signs of the times are. And we have a panel here that literally has traveled the world and thought about uh, the second coming and our message in many different ways. Some of them know about the economy and taxes. Some of them know about politics uh, to some extent. Um, and some of them, you know, can comment on other uh, other trends in the world. So let's talk about the world first, uh, and then we'll move to the church. And I'll open up to anybody. What are some signs that you see from your travels around the world um, that indicate that Christ is coming soon? One thing that's interesting is most of us would agree that it seems the world is coming unglued. I mean, things are not like they used to be. Uh, it's quite incredible that you think of the economy of the United States, for example, uh, purportedly the most prosperous nation in the world, and our country is $17 trillion in debt and has a massive unemployment. The student loan uh, rate now is beyond $1 trillion, the outstanding amount. It is so big and so pr uh, precarious that Senator Tom Harkin on the floor of the Senate recently said it could be the tipping point for the next recession in America. Most of you are likely aware that there's another $150 billion in private loans, but the, the $1 trillion is this uh, portion of uh, the student loans that are government-backed. And of course, since a number of years ago, students would go through on loans and then bankrupt after graduation. You can't bankrupt it on anymore. When you have all these loans, you pay it off or die. And this is incredible because there are whole cities in America that have already filed for bankruptcy or in the process like Detroit, Stockton, California, and so on. And this is an unusual time for our nation. And to borrow money to fix the problems we've had most of us are well aware that's not going to fix the problem. So we're in a precarious time. But something amazing is that in spite of all these problems, God's people are still supporting his work in a strong way, and I'm really glad to see that. Amen. So as you told me once on the mountain in Colorado, uh, do your giving while it's living so you're knowing while it's going. Get your money into the work. 
Is that what you told me? Yeah, there's one other interesting thing that I might mention, and that is when I uh, did the research for the book Sunday's Coming, I decided that I would study all this Bible and spirit of prophecy I have to say about Sunday. So, of course, the Bible doesn't mention the word Sunday in the English translations, but Ellen White does mention it. Uh, 1,895 times. So I printed them all off, which is about four reams of paper, and studied them through and looked only at the relevant ones. I took out all the duplicates. I got down to about 120 original relevant statements that Ellen White makes. And she says the agitation for Sunday will come about as a result of either one of these three things, either a financial crisis in America, a natural disaster, or a moral crisis. Now, you think about all of these things. Every one of them are evident right now. Are you aware that since June 26 of this year, just about six weeks ago, now because of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions, 30% of Americans live in jurisdictions where gay marriage is legal and encouraged? This is the United States. Welcome to the end times. Elder Wilson? Yeah, I think uh, Pastor Reed has emphasized certainly economic situation. Uh, Politically, when you look around the world, there are situations politicians simply cannot handle today. Things are falling apart. Uh, from an ecumenical standpoint, we're seeing movements that are directing uh, activities towards a restriction of religious freedom. But I would say that one of the most glaring things is what uh, Pastor Reed mentioned, and that is uh, the area of social change that has happened so quickly in a number of places around the world. Uh, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, acceptance, all of this, which is a direct rebuke against the Word of God. Now, we need to be certainly understanding and caring for every person that has a challenge. We're all sinners at the foot of the cross, but there is a solution for the sin problem, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I think these social, these social uh, developments are a very powerful understanding that we're coming to a very critical time in Earth's history. Okay, we've talked about the economy, we've talked about politics. Uh, Pastor Finley, is there anything that's not evident to the common eye as you've been thinking? And you're talking to lots of groups around the world and you're saying, man, you know, I see this, but other people may not see it. Is there some, anything like that? There's one item that really lets, at least indicates to me that we're on the verge of the kingdom of God. There's a statement in Great Controversy that I'll quote that says, before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of God a revival of primitive godliness. Satan desires to hinder this work, and before the time shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it, this is a quote, by introducing a counterfeit in those churches that he can bring under his guise, he will introduce false religious awakening. So before the final visitation of God's judgments, that's the seven last plagues, there'll be a revival. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will take place, and the latter rain and loud cry will be given. But before that, there'll be a false revival. Could it be that in a, in a generation that wants instant solutions, that the devil is going to palm off a counterfeit style of religion based on so-called Holy Ghost movement? Will there be a false tongues movement? Will Pentecostal churches and other charismatic churches and contemporary worship style churches with the new music introduced to them sweep thousands off their feet with a emotional form of religion rather than a religion, a spiritual experience that leads to studying God's Word, that leads to the knees, that leads to a heartfelt desire for character change and, and, and that leads to reflect the image of Jesus. Could we be seeing in the growth of many churches in America today a movement 
that really borders on an emotional form of religion, an instant form of religion. So I observe not only what's going on in the world, but what is going on in some Protestant churches that passes off for religion and passes off for spirituality. And I think we should be acutely aware of not only the science in the world, but the science in churches, which can substitute for a genuine spirituality. Anything else? Thank you for that. And that's kind of a segue that goes from the world to the church. But anything else that we see in the world, and I see Elder Brooks waving at me, I don't think as a friend, but because he has something to say. Just a comment. Uh, the Bible says the Lord knows those that are His. And we must not underestimate the power and work and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Something is going to happen. Ellen White says thousands will leave and join the enemy. But when they do, other thousands will come in to take their places. And the ranks of the Lord's army will not be diminished. I live with these hope. I live with these promises. I don't know when the Lord will come. I believe with all my heart He's coming soon. But I don't worry about those things that He has revealed to us. And you don't have to be a philosopher to go to heaven. The Bible says when Jesus spoke, the common people heard Him gladly. We don't have to have all these trappings of wisdom. Wisdom is the Word of God. And when it becomes a part of our lives and a part of our thinking, we're on a different track than most everybody else. 23% of Americans agreed with same-sex marriage in February. As August was drifting away, it was 83%. And now the remainder are embarrassed to stand. We've got to be very wise. I heard the chief say this once. We've got to be very wise about it, but it is not right. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And then he said, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot. Lot lived in Sodom. Sodom has given a name to a perversion, Sodomy. We all are clear on what it means, and everybody in Sodom was not a Sodomite. And yet they burned in the same fire because they supported the Poles that agreed with the filth. Um, I want to just bring up several questions, and thank you for that. Um, and then we want to move to um, signs within the church. Several statements were written in about various world religions, major world religions, other than Christianity. And the idea was, do these factor big in end-time events, world religions that uh, lead people away uh, you know, from the message. Uh, what is the role of these world religions and their almost increased activity and magnetism? Is that, does that have anything to do? A number of people have written questions similar to that with the end time. Okay. Fifteen seconds or more? <laughs> Seventeen. <laughs> it seems very clear from Revelation 13 and 17 that there is a globalism that occurs at the end of time and it has a religious overtone. So therefore something is going to happen whereby religion or a form of religion seems to become a global goal. I'm not smart enough to figure out how this will happen, but it's predicted in the Word of God. I can take uh, that at pretty good uh, value. And we're going to see some kind of unification. Globalism at the end of time around a form of religion is the ultimate threat sector for God's true people. Dr. Wilson? Definitely these world religions are playing a major role in shaping culture and in eventually 
uh, forming some kind of alliance which will be against the main theme of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, and that is turning people back to the true worship of God. Uh, righteousness by faith, Christ's righteousness, which is the core, really, of the three angels' messages, is in total contrast to every other religious belief uh, system because there is a, a self-initiated uh, approach to working your way through salvation, whereas a complete reliance upon Christ is the message of the three angels' messages. And really, I think uh, we're seeing a tremendous effort on the part of many world religions to, to somehow place their influence on the world's perspective. And that's going to affect all of us, and we have to redouble our efforts to present the complete, full message. That is the reason Seventh-day Adventists have been called at this time. Amen. I just want to just uh, mention, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in Matthew 24, it talks about a lot of external signs. And the verses that are often ignored are verses 12 to 14, where Matthew says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures the, to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. And that verse there, but he who endures to the end, is in contradistinction to what is mentioned, the, the lawlessness and the love of many growing cold. So that enduring to the end, when we look at Hebrews 12, verse 2, which Mark read for us, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 and 8 says that love um, endures all things. Love never fails. So in the end times, one of the signs of the end in God's people will be the agape of Christ. And, you know, it's easy to look outside and see all these things that are happening and get ready. But I hate to see, to think, that the thing that's going to precipitate the second coming is going to be just all these uh, external things. I think we as a people need to recognize, look inside our own hearts, because that's what's going to precipitate the second coming. I don't think it's going to be the other things. Thank you for that. And that segues us to then focus more on the signs of the church. And one of the signs you're suggesting is that there'll be this endurant love for Christ in the midst of conflict. I might just say one thing you didn't say on the panel, even though I'm the moderator, which must mean I'm a little more moderate than the rest of you. Um, you know, I've read a number of books recently, one from Harvard and one from Stanford, where the number one course at Stanford for the public that is, that is yearned for is a desire to have self-control. And that's the number one course people are attending. As I read the book of those class notes and then another one uh, that was related from another Ivy League school, it almost was a summary of the Adventist message. They went through and they said, if you want to have control in your life, for instance, one section was on bright lines. The bright lines were the Ten Commandments. And they said, the Ten Commandments, if you have something that's said to you from God and you just hang the Ten Commandments up in your office, studies now show that you'll have less cheating, less dishonesty, more compliance than if you hand out a policy book or if you look at this or that. This was a secular thing, and they were saying, what you really need is the Ten Commandments displayed prominently in your, in your building. And I thought of the early Advent churches that had the Ten Commandments on the front, and they saw them not as the law that you had to keep, but as a promise God would keep in you. And that somehow just brought, you know, focus to them. So thank you, panel, for allowing me to use my position <laughs> to make just one small point in the midst of your many points. 
um, which are excellent. Let's move on now to this idea of the church. What are signs in the church that God um, needs to come? Maybe good, maybe bad. Our last section, we're going to talk about what we can do to hasten His coming. So don't take all those. But I'm talking about signs in the church, and I have a number of, of questions here if, 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 if you need help. Yes. One of them is signs in the church. The Bible says, my people will be willing in the day of His power. And it's incredible, when Jesus' last words recorded in the first chapter of Acts, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And if you look at the, the uh, projects that were supported by ASI, some are local, some are in conference, some are worldwide. And I can tell you when people are thinking about their estate plans now, they're thinking, what can we do for our local church? What can we help the evangelism of our conference? What are the world fields? So these are positive things that I see. And we're told that near the end that people will give hundreds as cheerfully as dollars are given today. That is a good sign within our church, I believe. Okay, let, let me just throw a question in here um, that someone uh, called in, and I'm going to direct this to Elder Fenley since he was wanting to speak. Um, <laughs> my question is, are we holding up the return of Jesus by our current lifestyles within the church? There seems to be a relaxing of standards, and the church is looking a lot like other churches in the world. I've heard members say, when I talk about these things, this is not a salvation issue. And what I'm talking about is modest dress and jewelry and makeup and, and diet and Hollywood entertainment. Is, is this a sign of the end in the church? The, the solution to the standards problem is not, A, judging others whose standards may not be the same as my own. Neither is that solution focusing on those standards. The more I get to know Jesus, the more my heart yearns to be like Him, and the more selfishness and greed and lust are no longer part of my lifestyle. And so the solution, you know, Jesus says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. When I come to Jesus and I really know Him, I wouldn't want to do one thing that displeases Him. And if there is an article of dress, if there's something I'm watching on television that displeases Jesus, I wouldn't want that in my life. When I talk to young people and they say to me, is it wrong to watch this on television or what's wrong with movies, my approach to them is simply this. I would say to them, in Philippians chapter 4, God gives us a screen for our minds. When you put a screen on the window in the summertime, it keeps out the mosquitoes and keeps out the bugs. And God gives us a screen for our minds. In Philippians 4, God says, in the peace of God, verse 7, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The devil wants to steal our minds. Jesus wants us to keep our minds. Then Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, are, is what you're watching true? Whatever things are noble, it uplifts you, builds your character. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, if it's a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things or meditate upon these things. The Bible gives us eternal principles. And the question you ask is, what is your motive in dress? Is it to be an ambassador for Christ? or to draw attention to yourself. What is your motive in what you watch, in what you watch on television and others? Is that going to prepare you for the kingdom of Jesus? Or is it going to fill your mind with something that deteriorates from that kingdom? 
So to me, focusing upon Jesus, allowing the eternal principles of his word to shape my mind solves the standards problem. Elder Wilson? I wanted to say something about a very positive sign that I see within the church as to uh, the nearness of Christ's coming. We have humbly shared the idea of revival and reformation. You would not believe the incredible grassroots response that we are receiving from around the world. And as Nancy and I travel, as others travel, we visit local churches, areas all over this globe, and there is a resurgence of a humility before the Lord that I think is absolutely a clear sign that the Holy Spirit is doing something extraordinary. Uh, the, the whole understanding of a return to Scripture, reading the Bible and understanding it as it reads, uh, an understanding of the spirit of prophecy, uh, a passionate prayer life, and then a witnessing activity. And this is most remarkably seen in our young people. And I want to tell you, even though you can find challenges in the area of youth ministry and challenges to try to draw our young people back in, we're seeing an incredibly large interest on the part of young people to get back to the basics and to work for the Lord's soon coming. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have one minute left, and uh, are there signs in the church you want to bring up? I was, like, was going to answer your previous question about the jewelry, etc., etc. I'm going to answer that from the standpoint of a physician. If someone comes to your office as a physician with complaints of chest pain, maybe some leg pain, maybe some sweating diaphoresis, you don't treat each symptom. There's a reason for the symptom. And I think if we try to pick apart those things, you see what is actually going on. And I just want to read one quote that uh, Ellen White wrote. She says, there's one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures, Christ and him crucified. And I think if our young people came to church every week and they saw an uplifted savior every week, powerfully and convincingly presented from the pulpit, we would not be having a problem with jewelry and da 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 et cetera, so you can name them, you know, ad infinitum. So, spoken as a radiological cardiologist would, get to the heart of the matter. Well, welcome, welcome back, those of you that maybe just joined us. We're in the midst of a panel discussion on the second coming, and we have considered several questions. Why are we still talking about the second coming? Why has Christ not yet returned, and we had some vigorous answers to that. If you just joined us, you may want to get the tape or listen to it again as it's aired to, to see what the panelists said. Then secondly, what are some signs of the coming both in the world and then in the church? And uh, we, we heard some exciting things about what the Lord is doing in the church. I want to just, I know that section is done, but there was one other question I want to add there that we did not get to, and then we'll go to our final section, which uh, hopefully is really the take-home message. What can we do as church members to hasten the coming. Can we, in fact, hasten it? What can we do? But before we get to that section, a number of people wrote in, so I felt like we needed to address this. And, uh, and, and all the questions were similar, and I think they were grappling in most of these questions with the delay, and they were, they were saying, you know, well, maybe those prophecies made sense, um, you know, back then but maybe they need to be reapplied again, taking some portions of Scripture and then reapplying those uh, various prophecies and whatnot. So I want to ask you, uh, what would you say about these dual applications of prophecy that we're seeing uh, within the church? Uh, I think we're going to let Mark answer that when he had a good answer backstage, but I want to talk to you about the delay 
and uh, we've discussed this briefly also, and Ellen White says the apparent delay or tearing time is not so in reality. At the appointed time, he will come. I believe that Jesus wanted to come early, but he will not come late. Amen. I like that. Thank you. And now to the other section of the question, Elder Finley. What about the reapplication of time prophecies? You have to distinguish between application and fulfillment. If you look, for example, and I'll give you an example, if you look at the seven churches, the, the seven churches apply in a historical period of time, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, etc. But there are principles from those seven churches that you can apply in every generation. So when it comes to the application of the principles of prophecy, you can have more than one application. The Bible is always relevant, it's always true. But fulfillment is a different thing. Every time prophecy of the Bible that is rooted historically in time has one fulfillment. There is no exception when you look at the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give you some examples. The 1260 years, 538, 1798, you have a fulfillment. So Seventh-day Adventists look at a historical continuum. We look at, Bab we look at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11 as a historical continuum. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the rise of the papacy, the break, the break up of the Roman Empire, and eventually the coming of Christ. So we look down that continuum. Now what about taking prophecies, like in Daniel 12, the 1290 days, and reapplying it, saying that, you know, that may not apply to 508 to 1798. There are those, and here's what at least I believe, and I'll, I'll give you my own personal opinion. I think it's a fundamental fallacy to try to re-time set today. And there are two reasons for that. And uh, one of them is found in Revelation 10, where an angel swears, where, where, where you have this angel, Revelation 10, verse 7. And it says, Revelation says, he swore by him who lives forever and ever that created heaven and the things that are therein, and earth and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. So here you have an angel lifting his hand to heaven saying that after the fulfillment of the 2300 years in 1844, that prophetic time, the word for time in Greek is chronos, that chronos, prophetic time, runs out. So after 1844, there's no longer a message based on time. What is God looking for? He is looking for three things, the development of a people that reflect his lovely character, that love him so much that they go out and preach the gospel to the world. He's looking for people that are unselfishly served, that have a passion to serve the world for Christ. So the issue is not figuring out on a time chart. The, the issue is no longer figuring out some uh, time chart that one person understands that nobody else understands, and if they only would understand it, Jesus would come. The issue is now the development of a character like Christ, the passion to preach his love to the world, and the reflection of his character and, and the desire to see every human being know Christ and his love on a planet. So looking at time is no longer an issue. Here is a statement that really has helped me on this. It's seventh volume of the Testimonies 971, which Ellen White says, the people of God will never again have a message based on time. So it's no longer time that we're looking for. It's a people that are so committed to taking the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people in the world. Thank you for that. Going now forward to our next question, or final question actually for this section, we have about 23 minutes to develop it. And that is, how can church members, members of the Remnant Church, 
be involved in working to finish the work? Um, how, can, how can we involve in that? And I guess before we get into that, I have a specific question that I want to put before you because a number of people wrote in. And they were concerned with this emphasis, which I think also is a Bible text. It's actually, I don't know if they know it or not, but it's an actual text from the Bible that talks about hastening the coming of the Lord. And so I probably got 15 or 20 questions that asked, can we really even hasten his coming? That seems, one said, that seems like a real burden put on me. If he hasn't come this long and now I'm supposed to do it, how can we even say we're supposed to hasten his coming? Um, and uh, some of you are, are wanting to answer that. Yes, Esquire. I'd like to propose an answer out of old-time classic Adventism. And that is to remember when we're living, the period in which we're living. We are living. If anything we ever preached and believed is true, we are living in the Day of Atonement. This is it. We have been for 169 years, and as, as I said the other day, if that is not true, then we have no reason to be here. If we are living in the Day of Atonement, then how should we live? What did Israel do? They cleaned everything up. They cleaned their hearts. They stood in the door of their tents, which symbolized they didn't intend to be in the desert very long. They were headed home, and so should we be. Israel stood there, and the Hebrew word used to describe what they engaged in is anah. It means deep self-introspections, searching of one's own life. In what way am I still outside the will of God? And I just believe that people living on the Day of Atonement should take their relationship with the Lord very, very seriously. Okay. So, but did that hasten his coming? They knew when that was each year. Could you hasten the Day of Atonement? It came at a certain time. The question was really, can we hasten the coming of Christ? And uh, what do you think, Elder Wilson? I definitely believe that the Lord wants to use us to hasten His coming. And I don't think we can do it ourselves. It's as we place ourselves in God's hands. I think now we are developing so many opportunities for church members to become involved. Uh, any of you who have been involved in New Beginnings, in the uh, small group ministry, in public evangelism, some of us have just come out of a, a wonderful experience in the New York City area. When you are involved in preaching the biblical truths as Seventh-day Adventists understand them and lifting up the three angels' messages with Holy Spirit power, I want to tell you the changes that take place in people's lives and the messages which you actually preach. And as the one who was preaching in one of those meetings, it absolutely reinvigorates your belief that Jesus is coming soon. And it is one of those things which all of us, you may not be able to preach, but you can do medical missionary work. You may not be able to proclaim something publicly, but you can talk to your neighbor. You're going to see, I might add, a, a stronger emphasis in this area of personal ministry, of reaching out. I mentioned comprehensive health ministry. We're going to have a, a tremendous global conference on health and lifestyle in Geneva next summer, sponsored by the General Conference, where people from all over the world are going to be coming to help know how all church members can participate in the way that Jesus worked. So I think that there are many ways in which each of us can now get involved. If you have any questions, just go down to the exhibit area and you'll find all kinds of ways in which to witness. And that, I believe, as we humble ourselves, truly humble ourselves and ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the latter rain, I believe that that will hasten Jesus' coming. Okay. 
Doctor, you have something to add. Again, I want to, to, to draw from my physician background. You know, sometimes when you go to the doctor, they give you a difficult diagnosis. It's hard to swallow. And I want to just look at Revelation 3, because I think that's how we can hasten the soon coming of the Lord. He gave us a diagnosis which we do not like. It says, unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write. It says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, because you say I'm rich but have become wealthy, have need of nothing and do, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. That's a tough diagnosis, but praise the Lord. He doesn't leave us there. He says, I counsel you because you have all these medical issues, spiritual issues, to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's the Christ or righteousness, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And then in Zechariah um, 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And I think the answer to the soon, to the, to the hastening the, the coming of the Lord is to recognize and accept our diagnosis at the same time recognizing that he who gave us the diagnosis is loving and merciful and has a remedy for us. Amen. Okay, uh, I want to get to a couple questions. I know you have other things you'd like to say, but uh, the people are wanting to speak here as well. Um, here's one for uh, Elder Reed since he raised his hand. I really believe that we're at the end of time, but I have believed that for 30 years. But now I really know that it definitely is the end of time. But it's always hard to know what to do. Do we invest, invest the 401k that we're about to invest to prepare for retirement? What do we do with, with our funds? I have asked the Lord in prayer for answers that just don't seem to come. I feel that I perhaps have made bad choices in the past thinking the Lord was coming soon. Yet I know the end is near. The end is definitely near. I guess my question is, how should I prepare for retirement before the cloud of total financial collapse that comes on the horizon? Well, it's very interesting that people are concerned about the economy. Finances is something we all have in common, and it's amazing that uh, people are beginning to think more seriously about that in relation to the end. I think everybody here recognizes, this is important to understand now, that everyone who leaves this earth alive, that means you're in the safe group, will have gone through a period of time when you cannot buy or sell. How do you prepare for that time? A similar question is just like what you've asked. And I personally think there are several things that we've been told, and one of them is to develop our faith in God so that He can see us through these difficult times, put our lives in harmony with God's will. Ellen White was such a strong stewardship preacher that frequently when she spoke, people would come down the aisle spontaneously with tears in their eyes and say, should we sell our house? And she always gave the same answer, put it on the altar, and if you have more than one houses and lands, divest yourself of these and put the money in the cause. Someday we're going to have to walk off and leave everything as we see it being burned up. Is this true? And that will re you know, reduce its value considerably, as you can imagine. The whole idea yeah. is when we put ourselves in God's hands, all we have is belongs to God, and that will be, I think, important. There's a little triangle that we put in Faith and Finance, the new book on stewardship, which is retirement and end time, same thing. Make sure your needs are met, then the next level, your family, and finally, your spiritual legacy. And if you're people like Kathy and I who have, you know, taken care of our debts, we're taken care of, and so on, we should have a great focus on finishing the work now. We should all be audited by the IRS every year on contributions only. 
get that part. <laughs> let, me, let me toss one in here. I really agree with what Ed just said, but let the Lord lead. Yes. The important thing is put it on the altar and let the Lord make the decision. We could make the wrong decision, let the Lord lead. Pastor Brooks, question for you. Um, does, uh, what role, and this is talking about how members could be involved, so I put the question in this section. What part does church member activation, in other words, being an active church members, have in the process of receiving the latter rain? Don't we get the latter rain to empower us to do effective evangelism? Why do it before then? I uh, was sitting here thinking, at my age, I don't hear as well as some of my brethren. But I have a concern that I think gets to the bottom of most of our problems. God has a special love for this remnant church. Now, we know that this is true. Satan despises you, says the spirit of prophecy, and he hates the workers even more. So we've got that aspect of the great controversy before us. And the remedy for many of our churches is to simply preach the message God has given to us. They need to hear it in church and then share it in the streets. Listen to what God has said. We will not become discouraged. Hear it. But I heard a young man say, he was a minister, just a sign, and he said to his friends, I'm glad we don't have to preach that old stuff anymore. And I thought to myself, how tragic that is. God has given us an end time message. Ellen White says the three angels' messages are the last. And I sometimes ask, what part of last is it we don't understand? It is the last warning message to the world. We need to know it thoroughly. Second coming is a part of it. I used to have people come to me and say, Pastor, how do you do this when you're going to repeat the same evangelistic sermons over and over? I said, no, you don't have to do that. You must repeat the texts and the proofs, but you don't have, you ought to have 15 ways to preach the second coming. And it ought to be a joy discovering how to do it. And this, it is fresh. And when we understand our message and when we pray and revival strikes and that sort of thing, and we line up with it, then it will be a joy to share it because we are certain about something. I'm certain that this message is the truth. I don't have any doubts. I settled that a long time ago. I am certain, and I would trust that all of us will be soon. Elder Finley. You know, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. One of the reasons to get actively involved in witness and sharing your faith is because as you do that, you grow in Christ. God could have reached the world without us, but he gives us the glorious privilege to participate with him in his mission, and soul winning starves selfishness to death. Acts Acts of the Apostles 105 says, strength to resist evil is best gained through aggressive service. The Pharisees prayed and they crucified Christ. The Pharisees memorized the Bible and they crucified Christ. How can you pray and memorize the Bible and crucify Jesus? Because it focused on themselves. Sharing your faith, using the gifts that God has given you, witnessing, starve selfishness to death. The more I love Jesus, the more I share. And the more I share, the more I'm going to love Jesus. Amen. 
Elder Wilson? Yeah, I just want to touch on the point about the latter rain. Uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit has been working in a powerful way and is working right now, but there is going to come a time when the latter rain will fall in unprecedented power. And that is something that the Lord asks us to pray for and to humble ourselves for. Uh, Hosea chapter 6, this is a call to repentance and revival and reformation, and I think that's echoing again what uh, Attorney Walton was saying. This is the Day of Atonement. The sanctuary message is not just some nice collection of interesting apartments and things that we can talk about. It is a description of God's plan of salvation, and we're living in that very description. And Hosea 6, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn, but he'll heal. He'll bind us up. He'll revive us. We'll, that we may live in his sight, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. And in verse, uh, the end of verse 3, he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. And I believe that that latter rain is, is going to come. How else are we going to reach the entire world? It doesn't mean we should stop our mission activity, which is so beautifully exemplified here at ASI, and how the church is working in general. But God has promised something very unique at the end of time, and I think we need to pray for it earnestly. Amen. Okay, follow up on, on the comments of Elder Wilson, because there were a number of questions that were right to this idea of the latter rain, connecting it with the loud cry. So a number of people wrote in and said, what is the loud cry? Didn't I read somewhere that it already started? So this, I think, is, uh, is, is, is a very big concern as I got a number of questions. So what is the loud cry? Didn't it already start? Now we're talking about it needs to come, but didn't it already start? Well, I'll let the, one of these two master evangelists answer if they wish. But, you know, Revelation 18, uh, which has already been referenced, is, is one that describes the incredible power that will come down, much of that connected with uh, the work of publications and media, activity that will go into the hearts and homes of people. Um, I, I truly believe that the loud cry will come at a particular time in an expanded way when the conditions are such that people will have to make an absolute decision. And I think that is, I think I can see the convergence of so many things that are coming very soon when that loud cry will be shared in a most dynamic way. I'll read. One interesting thing is we're told that the Holy Spirit does not come on a waiting church, but a working church, and that's what Elder Findlay has just mentioned, Elder Wilson as well. And so if we want to receive God's Spirit, we become active, and I think that's important. One other thing I should say, when you study about the role of the Holy Spirit, it seems to me that Ellen White makes this amazing statement, we should be praying for the early rains experience as well. When people got the early rain, carefully listen uneducated fishermen were able to speak in languages they had never learned without an accent. So efficiently they won thousands of people to the church. In addition to that, they were able to raise you know, sick people, even raise the dead. Now this is incredible. And she says the latter rain will be more abundant than that. So I think our prayer will be, start me growing with the early rain so I can be ready to be finished off with the latter rain. Amen. Thank you. Okay, another question that came in under this idea of how can ASI members be involved and church members in finishing the work. Does each church having their own pastor have a negative effect on the church's evangelistic nature? And if so, what are the play plans to change that? I don't know if this person is trying to get rid of their pastor or not, Elder Wilson, but how would you respond to that? Is uh, if each church um, 
you know, has their pastor, doesn't that hamper evangelistic activity? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, actually, <laughs> Elder Finley said it depends who the pastor is. <laughs> you know, when you go back into Adventist history, you understand that pastors were not necessarily assigned to individual churches, but the church members were supposed to carry on local activities within churches, and pastors or preachers were to be proclaimers of the word in an evangelistic sense, and the church members were to tell the pastor, you go ahead and preach, and we'll just take care of all the, uh, the nitty-gritty of running the church. And I think that probably, and in some parts of the world, uh, in our world church, that's exactly what happens, where a pastor may have a district with 30 churches, 40 churches, and he may only get around to a number of them even during an entire year, and yet local leadership is driving the evangelistic activity. So I think probably we need to get back to more of a, of a model like that, rather than what uh, Ellen White the spirit of prophecy indicates we should not have settled pastors, so to speak, and a settled situation where everyone simply pays the preacher to tell them something nice. Rather, the, the church members ought to be involved to the maximum in evangelism, and the pastor ought to be instructing them as to how to do that. Hey, uh, uh, if I was a pastor listening to this, I'd be starting to do a lot of work. You know, when I was a pastor, I told my members, I'm going to reach out to the other, other non-Adventist ministers in the town, and you reach out to the others. Um, anyway, but uh, Elder Finley. Here is the incredible good news. Every single one of us has been called as a witness for Jesus. Every single one of us has been gifted by Jesus. We don't need a degree. We don't need authority. We don't need a letter of permission. When you become a Christian, you are a witness for Jesus. And if we can go from this ASI convention saying, Lord, what gifts have you given me that I'm not currently using that I can put into action in my local church for Christ? What do you want me to do? Here is an incredibly dangerous prayer to get on our knees and say, okay, Lord, you've been blessing my life. Okay, Lord, I've been witnessing to a certain extent. Okay, Lord, I'm here at ASI. I have desired to serve you, but what more do you have? What larger vision do you have? What do you want me to do that I'm not yet doing? Don't wait for your pastor. Don't wait for your conference or your local church board. Say, Lord, place in my heart a desire to witness for you in a broader way and follow the vision God puts in your heart. Amen. We have about two minutes left, and uh, I'm kind of torn with just talking myself or asking another question, so I won't do either. I'll just read a statement that I thought was uh, a powerful statement, and this is from seven, seventh volume of the Testimonies, 298, written in 1902, and I thought this put into focus this idea of hastening the Lord's coming. Let no one overtax his God-given powers in an effort to advance the Lord's work more rapidly, Pastor Finley. The, the power of man cannot hasten the work. With this must be united the power of heavenly intelligences. Though all the workmen now bearing the heaviest burdens should be laid aside, God's work would be carried forward. It's good news, isn't it? Yeah. So we need to work, but we have to recognize it's the angels and those intelligences that are, that are working with you. Has this been a blessing to you? 
How many of you think that we should, uh, you know, in the early church, you know what they said? They said, leave. Get out of here. Tell someone else before you forget what you heard. And as we leave ASI, hopefully go back to our churches and God can use us to indeed reflect his character and thus hasten his coming. May God bless you as we listen to this wonderful anthem. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.